Okay, Acts chapter number 1. We've been studying for quite a while now, and hopefully we'll move past this fairly soon to a new series, but Becoming a First Century Church. And I have, if you have your handout there tonight, the title at the top is Apostleship and membership. The two are not really connected. It's just the two things that I hope to be able to study tonight. As I was looking at Acts chapter 1, I think I have mentioned several weeks ago, well, I know there were certain qualifications for the apostles and things that the Bible said about it, so maybe I'll go back and double-check that. And I almost didn't get into this passage, but then I decided to go ahead and do it. And so last night, I just kept doing a lot of reading and a lot of reading to double-check and make sure that I had some things right. And sometimes I study for just a little bit of time, and I have so much that I make a series out of it. And then last night I felt like I kept reading and reading. I was like, I don't even know that this makes much sense as a Bible study, but hopefully these thoughts will be a blessing to us tonight. And what I really did was look at the passage in Acts chapter one to see the topic of apostleship and what were their roles and what were their qualifications. Is it something that continued or not? And then the text itself mentions a lot of things that are worth sort of deviating and studying. So we'll do a Bible study, the rest of Acts chapter number one. And then if we have some time at the end, we'll consider church membership and the example that we have there in the Bible. Uh, The printout does have some statements and then some spots where you can fill in as we go. And by the way, this is always just if it helps you, if you like it, if you want to just listen, everybody takes things in differently. Sometimes you might get distracted trying to write rather than just listen. So whatever you'd like to do. And then the page behind it has the verses printed out, which I've tried to do the last few weeks because there's a lot of scripture to read to go with it. And if we stopped and turned to everyone, that would probably take up too much time. So what I usually do is read a whole lot, but sometimes I know that gets hard for you to listen as we follow along. This way you can look and read as I read if it's something that you would like to do. But apostleship and membership, here in Acts chapter 1, I know throughout the course of our studies we've read the first eight verses where Jesus ascended up into heaven. He told them to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to be given on the day of Pentecost. And then after that, they were to take the gospel forth, beginning at Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. Let's go ahead and read verses 9 through 11, and then the main part kind of picks up in verse number 12. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which is, we believe, angels, as angels often appeared. The people who saw them thought that they were men. The text kind of refers to them as men. That's what the angels look like. And they say this in verse 11, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. They said as Jesus was taken up in a cloud, so there will come a day when Jesus will return in a cloud for his church. And that's what in verse number 6, they said, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It was still what was on the front of their mind because the Old Testament contains multiple prophecies of the Messiah as one who would rule, one who would reign, one who would take the throne in Jerusalem. Throughout Old Testament passages such as the Psalms and Isaiah and Zechariah, Zechariah we'll get into a little bit tonight, has a lot of prophecy of New Testament events and end times events as well. So they wanted to know, Lord, are you going to sit on the throne at this time? 
And then he had to tell them again in verse 7, it's not for you to figure out the times or the seasons. God the Father has in his hand the times and the seasons. Don't try to figure out when Jesus is going to return. He said, no man knoweth the day or the hour, but rather be busy about the gospel. So the angel said, why are you standing here gazing up into heaven? He's going to come back at some point, but your job is to go get busy with the business that he left you to do, which is the preaching of the gospel, the word of God, making disciples, teaching and feeding the church. So as they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to be given, because once again, he didn't say go out and start doing the work now. He said, wait until you receive power, thereby giving us the example that whatever it is we want to do for God, we have to seek his face, his blessing, his approval and his power first, or else we will fail because spiritual work has to be done through spiritual power, not through our own power. So while they are waiting for the Holy Spirit to be given, which happens in chapter 2, there's one other matter of business that the apostles meet and attend to. Verse 12. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotus and Judas the brother of James. Now, unless I got it wrong, I counted it all. It should be 11 names. It's the 11 disciples of Jesus Christ who were also called apostles. Why is there 11? Because Jesus chose 12 and one of them was Judas who at this point had betrayed Jesus Christ, showed himself to be a false convert and hanged himself. So the matter that they're going to meet to consider is we should replace Judas because Jesus gave us 12. It's an even number. Jesus said, I send you out two by two. There's 12 tribes of Israel. Whatever all the reasoning, they said, let's try to replace the person of Judas. Verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. We know that when Jesus was on the cross, he looked at John and told the disciple John, Behold thy mother, pointing at Mary, the mother of Jesus, and then said, Behold thy son. Even Jesus made provision for his mother that after he would be gone, that John would be in charge of looking out for her. So we see that they are continuing with prayer, with supplication. It's not just the twelve, but it's Jesus' family, it's the women. And then verse 15 says, And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, The number of the names together were about an hundred and twenty. So at this point, there's about 120 disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, who are meeting in the upper room. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to be given. And after Pentecost, that's when 3,000 people were saved, were baptized, were added to the church. The phrase is used in one day. And the church began to see this great growth. But now it's a group of 120 people that pretty much, I would say, made up the New Testament church at that point because the gospel hadn't really begun to to spread. Verse 16, Peter continues, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake. 
I'll just pause there for one second and point out that the Apostle Peter said that when David wrote something in the Psalms, it was not David's words. It was not David speaking. Though he was the human instrument, he says the Holy Ghost spake by the mouth of David. We believe that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for our teaching, for our manner of living, for correction, instruction and righteousness, that whole list that it gives there in Timothy. So when David speaks in the Old Testament, the New Testament says that was the Holy Ghost speaking by the mouth of David. It's all the Word of God, though he used men to write down what he wanted them to say which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was to guide them that took Jesus. Here it indicates that in the Psalms, there was a verse that had reference to Judas, or at least would apply to Judas and what he would do. The Old Testament is filled with prophecies of the New Testament. Billy Sunday said that if you were to take either Okay, I think he said it this way, actually. He said, if you were to take the New Testament and give it to someone who didn't know anything about the Bible and they began to read it, after a while, they would logically say, where is the other book to which this refers so often? Where is the other collection of writings that this book continues to reference? Because it's all the Word of God and it all fits. The book of Revelation has a lot of prophecy of the end times, but the Old Testament all put together probably has even more prophecies of things that haven't happened yet that one day will come to pass because it's all the Word of God. The first statement there in your handout, the first century church had apostles. The second one says, verse 16 through 20, tell us that the first century church had a false convert. Had a false convert. Which So it spoke of Judas, which was to guide them that took Jesus. Verse 17. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. They looked at Judas and they thought he's a disciple just like we are. He's an apostle like we are. He's a believer in Jesus Christ. He was so trusted that he kept and held the money bag, but he did not know the Lord. He was a false convert. And from the very beginning, even within the group of the twelve of Jesus, if there were some who walked among the church but were not truly of the church, then all throughout history we know that tragically, no doubt, there have been those who have met with the assembly of believers, listened to the preaching, partook, but yet they were not a part of the family of God because they themselves had not been truly saved of all the things that we can study in this Bible and look and learn. All of them are vital. All of them we need. That's why it's in there. And I hope that we grow in our Christian walk. I hope that we're pleasing to the Lord. But nothing is more important for any one of us here tonight than the fact that we know, that we know, that we know that we have been born again. Jesus said, ye must be born again. Accept a man be born again. Ye cannot see the kingdom of God. Some even have an experience through the church or as a child and without really understanding what was going on, they're always told where you're, you're a Christian. You were born a Christian or you were baptized when you were a child. And they even then may have a false sense of security because we have to know the Lord for ourselves. 
ourselves, when we've reached the age of accountability, we have to have a comprehension of the gospel to know that we're lost, to know that our sins have condemned us, to know that Jesus paid the price, and to say, I want that, and to receive it. And when we do, it is that simple to accept it, to receive it, however you want to say it. Uh, But a a lady that was in the church when my dad first came here almost 30 years ago, she was giving her testimony and she said, well, I didn't get saved till recent times, but I always thought that I was because she walked the aisle on a Sunday morning and the person met her and said, do you believe in Jesus? And she said, yes. He said, okay, sit down and fill out this decision card and then we'll baptize you. She didn't have any comprehension or understanding or knowledge of the gospel. But whatever the reason was, if it's a false sense of security, or like Judas, there was obviously a lot of pride in his heart that when Jesus corrected him uh, for the way he said, well, she shouldn't have been allowed to pour that ointment on Jesus' head. We could have sold it and given it to the poor. Jesus corrected him. And then the text says, from that day forward, he sought to betray Jesus. He obviously had a lot of pride and maybe a lot of self-righteousness. But whatever the case was, Peter said he was numbered with us. He had obtained part of this ministry, yet he was a false convert. And we need to watch out for our souls and for the souls of our loved ones and those around us to make sure that they truly know that they have been saved. Verse 18 continues with a story about Judas. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. So there's a couple of questions that come up as we read this text. Um, Let me see. Let's go ahead and read verse 19 and 20, and then we'll back up and read the New Testament story and talk a little bit more about the information that Acts adds to the story and how it doesn't contradict, but it just explains it a little different way and adds some information. Verse 19, And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue, Akeldama, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. So, let his habitation be desolate is quoting Psalm 69.25, and his bishopric, which simply means office, his position, let another take, is quoting Psalm 109.8. So sometimes there's prophecies in the Old Testament that the whole thing is very clearly about one New Testament event. Isaiah 53 is all about the Messiah. Yes, sir? What was the psalm? Because I was just asking. That's okay. Uh, psalm 6925, and then the other one references Psalm 109.8. And those are both quoted there in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 20. So thank you for that. I don't have those printed out. You might want to jot them down. Psalm 6925, Psalm 109.8. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy all about Jesus, the whole chapter. Sometimes there's prophecies that have to do with the king of the current time, but also has to do with the devil, because as you deal dive into it, it's sort of a double fulfillment. It addressed King Tyrus, I think was his name, who was proud, who elevated himself as God, but then it starts referencing the devil because it says you were in Eden the day that it was created, and you were more beautiful than God's creatures. So when you look in the Psalms, you may not see a whole section there about Judas, but there's at least a general teaching and a principle about the 
those who have rejected God. And it says, your habitation will be desolate, another person will take your office. And here he says it's written in the Psalms about this. And verse 16 says, The Holy Ghost spake by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So whether directly or sort of in a dual fulfillment, there's several places in the Old Testament that of Judas specifically, his fall is referenced and then there's many others as also. Okay, so let's stop and turn to Matthew chapter 27. So I guess the, the first part of this study you could call the, the fallen apostle or the false convert apostle because we're looking at the reason why they needed to replace Judas as an apostle anyway, and then we'll get into what apostles were and their position and all of those other things. But what it deals with first in the text is the fact that Judas had fallen, so they needed to replace him. So Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 1. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel to put Jesus to death. Um, Jason, can you read verses 2 through 5? Thank you. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate the governor. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed. And went and hanged himself. So much you can say about Judas and about this event, but here you see the chief priest who, yeah, we'll be your friend, we'll cut a deal with you, but they didn't care anything about him. They were looking to their own selfish intentions, which was to get Christ. And then when he repented, when he said, I've messed up, I've ruined my life, they didn't care. They didn't care one single bit. And people who have rejected God, who hate God, if we look to make allegiances with them, there will come a time when we will see they're really not looking out for us. They don't really care about us. They said, what is that to us? See thou to that. And I will say that Judas here, though he repented himself, it was not genuine repentance. He did not fully turn back to the Lord. Rather, he sinned by committing suicide and took his own life when Jesus would have forgiven him. Yes, even Judas, if he would have stopped and repented. We see Peter who messed up, but Peter went out and wept bitterly and was restored, Judas went out and hanged himself. Verse 6, And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said it is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. So Judas gets 30 pieces of silver in his pocket as an agreement to betray Jesus. He comes back and he says, no, I want to take this, this deal back. I've wronged. I've betrayed an innocent man. They said, we don't care. Judas takes the 30 pieces of silver and casts it at their feet. So now they've got a sum of money that they have to figure out what they're going to do with it. And even these priests who spent the money to put Jesus to death said, well, we can't just take that and throw that money into the treasury. It's blood money. That's bad business. We don't want to do that. It was blood money to betray the Son of God. But they're stuck with it. They've got to figure out what do we do with it. They didn't want to just dig a hole and bury it and get rid of it. Verse 7 says, And they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. 
Okay, so let me stop for a minute. It's like last night, every time I tried to read a little piece and then it references something else. And for me, I just want to study and I want to look what is the Bible saying rather than rush through it. So they said, let's take this money and let's buy a field and strangers who don't have family, who don't have money, it'll just kind of be that place where the foreigner gets buried when they need to get buried. And verse 8 references what Acts 1 says when it says that it was called the field of blood unto this day. Now, I I don't know if you want to hold your place there, but I'm just going to reference a little bit of what Acts chapter 1 says. We know from the other Gospels that Judas died, how? By hanging himself. He committed suicide by hanging himself to a tree. Acts 1.18 speaks of Judas, and it says, This man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. It's a little graphic, but it means he fell, and when he fell, his body sort of exploded, and the parts that were on the inside came to the outside. So some people say, well, is this a contradiction? How did he die? Did he die from falling, or did he die from hanging himself? Did he buy the field, or did the council of the high priest buy the field? Now, obviously, if you fall, that's usually not what would happen is that you would burst asunder in the midst and all of your bowels would gush out, even if you violently fell and died. So apparently, this is the way it happened. Judas went out and hung himself, and no one either saw him or no one came to take the body down. And after hanging for a very long time, the body rots, it decays, either the rope broke, the tree branch broke, and his body fell, and literally his decayed body basically hit the ground and decomposed. It, it did that. So, yeah, I'm ready to be done talking about that part. But it says in verse 18, this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. But Matthew 27 says that they took counsel and they decided to buy the potter's field. But both are talking about the same place because Acts chapter 1 says, therefore it is called this day the potter's field. It's called the field of blood. Matthew adds that it was used to bury strangers. Someone said, well, maybe Judas got the money, went out and made a deal, didn't follow through in the contract, killed himself on the field so they followed through. I think the much simpler explanation is Judas was the one who provided the money. It was Judas that provided the money. It was his money. And he could then be said to be the purchaser because though the money originated with the high priest, they didn't want to take it back and just put it into the treasury. They wanted to stay separate from it. So they said, okay, let's buy the field where Judas hanged himself and his body exploded that no one really wants. And it'll just be called a potter's field to bury strangers and a field of blood, very literally purchased with blood Money. Now, before we go forward, anyone, anything else you wanted to add there? This sentence is basically saying the exact same thing you just said. You said the two different passages are referring to the same field. The two different passages are referring to the same money. Exactly. Exactly what you said. It was the money that Judas had that he was given. There's two different ways you could look at it. I could tell Jason, here's $10, go to McDonald's, and this is what I want. You could say he bought it because he passed it, or you could say Jack bought it because it was Jack who the money originated with. At any rate, it's all the word of God, but God did use, even in the New Testament, 
it's all inspired, but they're different perspectives. That's why you'll get information added to a story the way that Matthew told it, Mark told it, Luke told it, and John told it. And when you put together all the parallel passages, just like you would have multiple eyewitnesses at a scene, that's one person may be telling exactly the truth, but then another one adds a detail. And that's why when police begin to witness, you know, investigate, interrogate all the people, you get a clearer picture of what happened. Okay, Matthew 27 and verse number 9. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. So now let's stop and let's go to Zechariah chapter 11. The second to last book of the Old Testament. When they said Jeremy, they were talking about Jeremiah, right? Yes. He is. Jeremy means Jeremiah. And before we get into the text, that's another question that comes up. Because the prophecy is very clearly written in Zechariah, not in Jeremiah. So a lot of people have tried to look and say, how exactly do we reconcile this? Well, there was a story where Jeremiah was told to go buy a field, but this specific one about Judas was written of Zechariah. Some have said, well, it was spoke, it says it was spoken by Jeremiah. So maybe Jeremiah preached it and Zechariah wrote it down. Um, Maybe that could be possible. I, I was looking at the times. It didn't really seem like they lined up that Zechariah would be writing something that was preached by Jeremiah. And it's a story that's played out in the life of Zechariah. Uh, someone said that the Old Testament is broken up into three sections. And the Jews would call it the law, the writings, and the prophets. And they said that in that day, the section of the prophets began with the book of Jeremiah. So it was common for people of the day to refer to that whole section as Jeremiah or as the book of Jeremiah or what Jeremiah had said. At any rate, that seemed to me to be the most logical conclusion that maybe it's just referring to that section of the Old Testament. But let's go ahead and look at the story. There's a story that plays out in the life of Zechariah that God uses as an illustration to the nation of Israel. And then that part of that story is quoted as being a prophecy about Judas. Zechariah chapter 11 and verse number 4. Okay, thus saith the Lord my God, feed the flock of the slaughter, whose possessors slay them and hold themselves not guilty. And they that sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their own shepherds pity them not. So God tells Zechariah he's going to go and be a shepherd and he's going to feed a flock and it's going to be called the flock of slaughter because the sheep are going to die and it's going to illustrate what's happening here in the nation of Israel. And he says in verse 5, their possessors, their owners hold themselves not guilty and they that sell them say, blessed be the Lord for I am rich and their own shepherds pity them not. No doubt mirroring how in that day there were a lot of false prophets and a lot of false shepherds who pretended to care for the people, but they were not speaking for God and from God and did not care that the people were headed to destruction because they themselves were enriched and elevated off of their position. Verse 6, God says, for I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord. But lo, I will deliver the men, every one into his neighbor's hand, and into the hand of the king, 
and they shall smite the land. And out of their hand I will not deliver them. So God is using this story about Zechariah shepherding a flock of sheep to illustrate the fact that God is going to deliver the people of the land into the hand of the neighbor, the hand of the king. They will be smitten and God will not deliver them. Verse 7. And I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. And I took unto me two staves, which would be like a shepherd's staff. The one I called beauty, and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. So he's hired to do this job to take care of the sheep. He has his staffs, and he's feeding them as he has been hired to do. Verse 8. Three shepherds also I cut off in one month, and my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. In the span of a month, he fired three other shepherds, and there was animosity between he and between they. Verse 9. We're almost to the part where we see the kind of the picture of Judas come in. Verse 9. Then said I, I will not feed you. That that dieth, let it die. And that that is to be cut off, let it be cut off. And let the rest eat every one of the flesh of another. He then, as direction from God, fails to do his job, fails to feed the sheep, and lets them die as a picture of what God is letting happen to the nation that has rejected him. Verse 10, And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant, which I had made with all the people." Verse 11, And it was broken in that day, so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. He takes the staff, he breaks it, and he says, I'm breaking the covenant I made with you. You put me in charge of feeding this sheep and of keeping them alive, but I'm not going to do it. And then it says the people knew that it was the word of the Lord. They knew that it was picturing and referencing that God's covenant with them was going to be broken for a time and that God would not protect them from their enemies and they would be allowed to be slaughtered and die as the sheep that had not been fed. Verse 12, And I said unto them, this is Zechariah speaking to the people who had hired him to do the job, that he then said, I break the covenant and I'm not going to do it, and it's a picture of what God is doing to you. And I said unto them, verse 12, If ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. He says, if you want to, then pay me the price that I've been hired to do. If not, then don't do it. Either way is okay. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. Interestingly, this 30 separate measures of silver was the price of a slave in the Old Testament. So someone said perhaps they mockingly paid him those exact wages, the wages of a slave, because they were upset at everything that had happened. The first verse that's printed out in your, your other handout is Exodus 21.32. The Old Testament law says this, If the ox shall push a manservant or a maidservant, he shall give unto their master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. If your animal went out and gored and injured or killed the slave of another person, then you as the owner would have to pay 30 pieces of silver to replace the damage because of 
the indentured servitude, it obviously did damage to the person that the slave worked for, but also it was a human life that had value in the eye of God, and the ox then had to be put to death. You couldn't just let it keep going. Um, I don't know, Judge Judy says if your dog bites somebody, you have to pay for it. It doesn't matter that it wasn't you, it was your responsibility. And slavery in the Old Testament was a form of indentured servitude. There's actually another verse that says if anyone goes and captures someone against their will and makes them a slave, which is what happened in a lot of modern contexts, you would be put to death for that. So God valued even their life and the price of a slave was 30 pieces of silver. I was just going to say that in a lot of places in law, I think sometimes there's like, give a second chance, but from this principle in the Bible, a lot of different jurisdictions have had the law that if your dog bites someone or injures them, the dog is put to death because it's proven itself to be dangerous. Right. Like you said that if you value human life, you take the life of the animal to protect other humanity. Right. Absolutely. So, 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave, and Judas illustrates to all of us how we can quite easily become a slave to sin, to the devil, by giving in to our desires. He wanted vengeance against Christ. He wanted the money. He betrayed him, but it did not make him happy. It immediately turned bitter in his hands, and the devil is a master at making us lust after or want things that even if we got them, would not make us happy. If God has said it is forbidden, if God said you don't need that, you don't want that, then we need to have faith, we need to trust God that it is not good for us, and run from it and never worry about what it is that we are missing out on. But at any rate, maybe that's why they paid him the 30 pieces of silver, was it was the price of a slave, they were mocking him. At any rate, that's what he got paid And he got paid for a job where he was supposed to take care of the sheep, but he betrayed the sheep. There's some parallels there to Judas. He was supposed to be an apostle to watch after the church of God, but instead he betrayed Jesus Christ himself. Verse 13, And the Lord said unto me, Cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was prized at of them, and I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter, in the house of the Lord. I think the word there, potter, just has to do with pottery and with the molding of clay. So at any rate, Zechariah was paid 30 pieces of silver and he gave it to the potter in the house of the Lord. And then the New Testament says that when Judas betrayed Jesus Christ, he was given 30 pieces of silver. He gave it back to the people who were in the house of the Lord and they took it and bought what? A potter's field. So at any rate, there's a a foreshadowing, an analogy, and I would definitely say that this would be called a dual fulfillment. It fit Zachariah's context in an exact story with an exact purpose that happened in his day, but it also pictured and referenced something that would happen with the story of Judas, where there's definitely a lot of parallels. This happens a lot in the Old Testament. If you turn over a couple pages to Zechariah 13 and verse number 7, here it says this, Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Here this verse states a fact and a principle that if you smite the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. We as the church are called sheep. 
because we need to be cared for. If we're left to our own without Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, and even in the New Testament it calls the spiritual leaders, the pastors, the preachers, the under-shepherds who are to feed the flock of God. If we go our own way, don't listen to God, don't listen to the Word of God, don't listen to the preaching of the Word of God, we will be like sheep, we will be lost, but Jesus is the good shepherd that cares for the sheep. And then you have printed out Matthew twenty six thirty one. This is when Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. He references Zechariah and says this principle, this thing that was written that is true in general, also referenced this specific event where as they came to arrest Jesus and to smite him, what happened to the sheep? They were scattered. So at any rate, all of that is just very interesting to me to look. And Judas is... I don't know, is it the only person in all of the Bible? But Jesus said it would have been better for him had he not been born. I certainly don't remember that being said of anyone else, which gives us definite evidence that he was not saved, that he did not know Jesus Christ as his Savior because there was no redemption in his life, and that meant that he was headed to go to the lake of fire forever. Imagine to have walked with Jesus, to have been one of the twelve, to have been eyewitnesses to sick people getting healed and even dead people getting raised. And to be lost, and to be under the curse, and to have drifted from Jesus Christ. Whoever we are, wherever we are from, we need to know that we personally know Jesus Christ as our Savior. And if not, it is a tragic thing, and we will be lost. It's a little bit early, but that kind of concludes the thought. And I think I feel led to kind of wrap up here for just a moment. Um, So we'll take the offering and maybe we'll sing a song or two and then be dismissed. Did anyone have any questions or thoughts on the study tonight? I always do this, but I don't mind opening it up. Uh, Brother Jason? Uh, I'm just kind of repeating myself what I said about the... Right. So much of what was in the Bible was what ended up being early law, and much of it continues to this day. It's not anything else much more except something to be thankful for that we live in a culture that's been heavily influenced by the Bible and the scriptures. And then also, it could just be an interesting study. If you look, well, where did some of these things come from in law? You trace it back to English law. A lot of it was based on biblical principles like that that were spelled out, even in the Old Testament Jewish law that doesn't necessarily apply anywhere exactly anymore, or not hardly anywhere. The principle is still I was I was reading that quote from uh, Patrick Henry Sunday morning on the "Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death" event and speech, and he even had a phrase in there where he said, "Why stand we here idle all the day?" And that's a reference to scripture. And as you read their quotes, you'll just see scripture quotes over and over again. It's actually a good percentage of their written statements. 
the people who of that time signed the Declaration, came up with the Constitution, were direct quotes or else scriptural principles. And there's even another little wrinkle to that, but the, the Bible says, can a leopard change its spots? I think at one point it, it even says you don't get mad at the snake because it wants to bite you because that's its nature. So it's saying you have to be careful and know that's what it's going to want to do. So I've heard people say, well, if you take a lion and put him in a zoo and the lion gets out and hurts someone, that's really all on the people who did that because they knew they were taking an animal and making it do something that was against its nature that even comes a little bit different out than the oxen, which you get a wild dog or animal that usually isn't violent, but that is. So good thoughts. Anybody else? Yes, sir. This isn't the most important thing, but have you ever noticed that maybe, uh, okay, uh, evil people in the Bible have a certain name like Judas, and then that, that same name is is the name of another person in the Bible who isn't like that, like Judas, who was one of the eleven. Right. We read that in Acts chapter 1 tonight. It said Judas and then the brother of James, right? Isn't that what I think it said? They had to specify which one because there was two people named Judas. So evidently it was, you know, a common name of the time. But I will also say this, uh, Proverbs, I believe it is, says a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. I was a teenager one time in a preaching meeting and someone was teaching on that about your testimony and what do people think of when they hear your name. And he said, how many of you in this room have ever personally met someone named David? I'll ask tonight, how many of you have ever met someone David? That's pretty much everybody in the room. And then he said, how many of you have personally met someone named Absalom? Why? Nobody names their kid Absalom. Why? Because their name is tagged with a story of rebellion. You think of the name Jezebel. You think of the name Benedict Arnold. You don't meet a lot of those running around nowadays because their name got so literally ruined in the English language just by a story of history or of a story in the Bible that even though there was a good Judas, nobody wants to be associated with Judas. Uh, you're not going to name him Judas, the brother of James. So you don't want to name them... <laughs> Judas at all. So, man, you never know. I bet a lot of these people in history or in the Bible didn't really close their eyes and imagine for the rest of all human history, everybody's going to know exactly what I did because it's going to be in the Bible or history and it's going to literally ruin my name forever and ever. So that's a good thought to remember and, you know, to apply to that. Anybody else? Let's have a word of prayer and then... I will take the offering, and Jason, then you pick a song and close us out with a hymn tonight. Thank you all for being here. God bless you. I love being in the house of the Lord. I love you all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we've had to study your word tonight. And as we began the study of apostleship and what it meant, basically all we covered tonight was there was a false convert apostle. And Lord, that should make us fear for our souls. It should also make us want to... Have a good testimony. Yes, give ourselves a good name. People will often say your parents, you're representing your parents, your church. But most of all, if we bear the name Christian, we are representing Jesus Christ himself. So may we strive to live for you and to have a good testimony. Most of all, to be your ambassador, to represent you well in this world. May we all know that we are saved. May we take these thoughts and applications even after church. Sometimes may we think over the passage and the teaching and receive different insights and application from the Holy Spirit for your word. All of it is your word. All of it is true. All of it came from the 
Holy Spirit, and all of it applies to our life. Bless now as we pass the, the offering plate, if anyone has an offering, and then as we are closed out with the hymn, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.